Um, I'd like to start with an apology, if I could. Um, it's been pointed out to me by my life group and um, as some select individuals in the church that the ident that we've created for this series um, perhaps doesn't look like the speech bubble I intended it to look like. Um, <laughs> but actually a, a giant something else. Uh, so sorry if that's caused offence to anyone. Um, hopefully you'll find that better. And the, uh, the image therein will be communicated more effectively. Sometimes I get carried away with my artistic tendencies and don't look at the bigger picture. Anyway, <coughs> moving swiftly on. <laughs> um, we're looking at the words of Jesus from the cross, the seven sayings of Jesus as he hung on the cross. A couple of weeks ago, Steve, no, me, in fact, took us through uh, Luke's account of the crucifixion. Uh, and we looked at the word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And we looked at how Jesus was incredibly obedient to his father in doing and saying that. It says in Isaiah 53 that he will make intercession for the transgressors. And that's exactly what he did on the cross as he prayed forgiveness for those um, that had hung him there, speaking on our behalf. Uh, and then last week, Steve took us through John's account of the crucifixion, and we looked at two further things that Jesus has said. We looked at um, Jesus' ask of John to take care of his mother, uh, and vice versa. And we looked at when Jesus said that, I thirst. After he'd been hanging on the cross for that time, he became thirsty. Um, and we looked at, at the humanity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus wasn't just God, but was man as well, um, and how he understands us and can empathise with us. It says in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And Jesus knew what it was to be human. But everything that we've looked at so far with Jesus, assuming that we know something about him, shouldn't come as too much of a surprise. Jesus told the disciples um, that they should love their enemies and pray for those that persecute you, which is exactly what he did on the cross. Jesus knew the commandments, you know, the fifth commandment, honour your mother and father, which is what he did on the cross. But today we're going to look at something that Jesus said that was um, unusual for him, something that he'd never said before, something that was said in a way that he'd never spoken before, something that actually is a bit out of character for him. And it's the only words of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And in fact, it's the only thing that they say he said on the cross. And it's probably some of the most emotive words spoken in the Bible, if not the most emotive, spoken at the time of Jesus' greatest anguish and hardship and pain. And we're going to read it from um, Matthew's Gospel. So if you've got your Bibles with you, or your phones, or your iPads, or your Kindles, or anything else, if you can find Matthew 27... Um, failing that, so I'm going to put it on the screen as well, um, so we can read together. I'm going to read from verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. 
Above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him. One on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusts God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When those who were standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran to get a sponge and filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So none of the gospel accounts really give us more than a paragraph or two describing what happened um, at the crucifixion. And as such, when we read it through for ourselves, it can seem like quite a short process, quite a quick thing that happened. But actually, crucifixion was designed to last um, ideally for days. It was a torturous affair. Mercifully for us, um, it didn't last days for Jesus. But it wasn't quick either. Mark gives us an indication of the time that it took. He said they crucified him at the third hour, um, which is nine o'clock for us, so just over two hours ago. And that he died at the ninth ninth hour, which is three o'clock, so presumably sometimes after you've you've had your dinner. And then around midday, around twelve o'clock, an unusual darkness came over all the land. I don't know how many of you... Um, caught the eclipse on Friday. I um, shared it with some uh, school kids that we had up at the church practicing for an Easter production. Um, and they're all there with their, their bits of paper looking at the eclipse. And I thought, I'll, I'll get some photos of this wonderful event. Um, I'll be honest, my photos were a little bit disappointing. It just looks like a nice day. Um, and then, of course, I went onto Facebook and everybody else had wonderful photos of the, the moon coming over. But this darkness wasn't an eclipse. It couldn't have been an eclipse. It was a full moon at Passover. This was an unnatural darkness, a supernatural darkness. And then towards the end of that darkness, after Jesus had been on the cross for a total of six hours, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what's so unusual about the statement? It seems fairly logical to me that having spent six hours on the cross, that's something that you would cry out. But at no point in Jesus' ministry had he ever experienced this kind of disconnect from his father, this kind of separation. He'd been moving into a position of loneliness and a rejection by those that were closest to him. He'd had the Last Supper with his 12 followers, his 12 closest friends, and then Judas had left to betray him, leaving 11 And then the eleven had gone with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
to pray with them. And he'd chosen three of those to come and pray with him, Peter, James and John. But then those three had fallen asleep. And then when Jesus was arrested, the other eleven scattered and ran away. Peter and John followed him at a distance to where he was being held captive. But then as we know, Peter denied him on three occasions as he was asked, are you a follower of Jesus? And Steve mentioned last week that John was at the cross with his mother, so we know at least one of his disciples made it to the cross. But Jesus passed on the care of his friend John to his mother, and so he was left on the cross on his own. But Jesus had always had his relationship with the Father to fall back on. Always. God always had his back. John 8, 29 says, The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. John 10, 30 says, I and the Father are one. And he often spoke about his relationship with the Father in this singular manner. He would take himself away from the hustle and bustle of the crowds and he would spend time with his Father praying to him. In fact, he predicted the very event in John 16.32. It says, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. But here we see Jesus saying that he declares, declaring that he feels abandoned by God. Why? Why have you forsaken me? And I think all of us have... Um, a primal fear of abandonment. Something deep inside uh, whereby we're scared of being left alone, scared of being abandoned. Uh, my son, uh, Elijah, has developed a new game he likes to play. Um, and it, it, he plays this game first thing in the morning uh, as we're leaving the house, normally running late, um, heavy laden. I'll have both kids' bags on each shoulder, the lunch boxes, my laptop, Emily on one side, Elijah on the other. And uh, I live in a, a cul-de-sac where it's not always possible to park right next to the house. Uh, and as soon as I leave the front gate, Elijah will run off. And he'll go a few hundred metres and he'll stop. And he'll turn around and he'll grin at me like this. And so the game begins. Now, I can't leave him because we're next to a road. But if I take so much as one step towards him, he'll run on a little bit further. <laughs> Cheeky grin. But I've found out how to beat him. I've discovered how to win at the game. What you do is you keep an eye on him, but walk to the car, put the bags in the car, and then you say, Bye, Elijah. Have a nice day. And then the smile turns to fear. And he runs to the car. No, Daddy, no! And I crawl. <laughs> but the fear of abandonment is enough that he'll come to me. The fear of being left by himself. And that's a silly example, that's a fun example. But, you know, I've worked with, um, with children before that have, have really experienced abandonment by parents and been left alone and neglected and seen the damage that it does. And I'm sure many of us here have experienced abandonment or forsakenness by people that we love. Friends or partners or parents or even children. And it's a horrible, horrible thing. But none of us have experienced abandonment from God or rejection from God. Paul writes in Acts 17.24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and is not served by human hands. As if he needed anything, rather he himself gives everyone life and breath 
and every, everything else. And we're in a world that's full of God. We are sustained by God. Whether we believe in him or not. Yet here was Jesus asking, why have you forsaken me, God? It's also strange the way he prays. You know, this is the only time that Jesus prays this way, where he uses a lie instead of Abba. Abba is the normal way he addresses his father. Abba is a, a term of endearment by a beloved son. The best translation we have of Abba is Daddy. Dad, it's familiar, it's close. A lie means mighty one, strength. It's referring to a God that is all-powerful. A God that could do something, but here doesn't appear to be doing anything. Why? Why, God? So what is going on here? Why is Jesus praying in this way? Well, anyone of a Jewish persuasion who'd been there, anyone who was familiar with the scriptures that we now have as our Old Testament, um, when Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, would have been drawn immediately to the beginning of Psalm 22. And the Psalms are written by King David, and Psalm 22 in particular was written at a time when David was surrounded by his enemies, when David was feeling abandoned by God. And it begins... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Exactly as Jesus said it. And Jesus wanted to bring to mind this psalm. And Matthew and Mark wanted to bring to mind this psalm. That's why they recorded it in Hebrew and not just in Greek. But why 22? Why not 23? 23 offers more comfort, doesn't it? 23 is what we often use at funerals. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 22 is not as comforting. It continues this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I find no rest. David is also crying out to God. And I suspect more than one of us this morning have asked that question ourselves. Why? Why, God? Why is this happening to me? And when things are bad, I want you to know that it's okay to cry out to God. God has no problem with us expressing our pain and our frustration, even if it's sometimes with Him. Even if we're not sure sometimes what God is doing. God is okay with us crying out to Him and questioning Him on that. Believe it or not, I occasionally frustrate my own children. I think I frustrate Shah more, but sometimes the children. Um, and the other day I, I committed a most heinous act. I put um, juice in Elijah's Thomas cup instead of his Spider-Man cup. <laughs> and uh, he lost it at me. You know, he was angry and he was shouting and no. And he was frustrated with me. But as his father, it's okay. I can cope with that. And God as our heavenly father can cope with our emotions. He can cope with our frustrations. So it's okay to cry out to him. Even when things are really bad. And you know, sometimes I think that we pretend things are okay. And we go on saying, yeah, everything's fine. And we keep it all bottled up inside. And Jesus is our example in this. You know, Jesus was on the cross and he was in a period of literal darkness. It had literally gone dark. 
but he was in a period of spiritual darkness as well. Not only was he in physical agony, but he was in spiritual agony as he, as, as he experienced the weight of our sin. All of the stuff that we do that is against God, Jesus took upon himself. It says in 1 Peter 2, 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to our sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we've been healed. And on the cross, Jesus experienced the darkness and depravity of our sin. And he experienced it in a way um, that none of us will ever really understand. Because here was someone who had never sinned, never done anything wrong, never been separate from his father, never been apart from God's will, experiencing sin for the first time and the separation that comes with that. If Jesus is able to express himself to the Father in this way, then so can we. But you see, Jesus' cry wasn't an indication that he'd stopped trusting God. He hadn't given up on the plan. He hadn't given up on his Father. Far from it. Anyone that had brought to mind Psalm 22 would know that actually it doesn't end at verse 2. The psalm goes on. Verse 3 brings us a yet. It says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. You and our ancestors put their trust They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And you see, he reminds himself of God's faithfulness. And that God has a plan despite his current predicament. The yet is so important. You know, things are really tough at the moment. God, I'm really not coping. Yet I know you can see me through. I don't understand why I'm facing this situation, why this is happening to me, yet I know you are in charge. God, I feel like you've given up, yet I know you are faithful. And as you continue reading through Psalm 22, David continues in this tension between pain and discouragement and faithfulness and hope. Verse 6 says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. And then verse 9, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. I know you've taken care of me up until this point. And asking questions of God doesn't make us unfaithful. It simply means that we're in the dark. It means that we're unaware of the full picture. We can't see how things are going to end. And on the cross, Jesus was in the dark. But he trusted God. He trusted his father. Um, A young Jewish girl in the Warsaw Ghetto in the darkness of the Second World War um, hid from the uh, the Nazis and she wrote the words of a poem on the wall where she was hiding. And it said, I believe in the sun even though it's not shining. I believe in love even when feeling it or not. And I believe in God even when he is silent. And we can trust God because with God there is always a yet. And what's interesting is that Psalm 22 um, then seems to continue and it actually seems to follow the crucifixion. There seems to be these amazing parallels between what was happening to David and what was happening to Jesus. Hundreds of years before the crucifixion was even invented, the Romans invented crucifixion. Verse 8 says, He trusts in the Lord 
They say, let the Lord rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. That's almost exactly what we read in Matthew 27, 43. Word for word. Verse 15. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me down in the dust of death. Uh, potsherd is like a shard of pottery. But crucifixion would have uh, dehydrated Jesus. Remember last week he said, I thirst. It goes on, verse 16, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me, they pierce my hands and my feet. This is exactly what was happening to Jesus. Verse 18, they divide their clothes among them and cast lots for my garment, which again is what we read earlier in Matthew 27 35. But here's the best part, here's the most exciting part, the biggest yet. The psalm starts in despair. But it ends in victory. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the only words that Matthew and Mark record. But it's not the final thing they record him saying. They both say that before he died he let out a final cry. And John records that cry as the word tetelestai. Which for us breaks down into three words. It is finished. And how does Psalm 22 end? He has done it. It is finished. And Jesus quotes the start of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he quotes the end of Psalm 22. It is finished. So if we're going through a tough time this morning, if things are difficult for us, we can come back to the cross. And we can know that even in the darkness of death, God is still working his plan. There is no greater suffering, no greater pain, and no greater victory. And God can take anything, absolutely anything, even the murder of his own son, and use it for his purposes. See, with Jesus, there is always, always hope. A final encouragement. In John 6, 37, it says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Jesus took on the weight of our sin and experienced abandonment so that we never have to. Not in this life or the next. We never have to experience abandonment from God. I don't know what everyone's facing this morning. I don't know what everyone's going through. Some of you I know have got things very tough at the moment and some things are difficult to cope with and it might feel for some of you that things are really dark that there isn't much light at the end that there isn't much hope at the end of the tunnel and you might feel things are closing in and you might feel that actually I've been abandoned here I want you to know firstly that it's okay to cry out to God it's okay to express your frustration it's okay to come to him with your emotion Secondly, I want you to know that even if it does seem really dark, that you can trust him, that he is faithful, that there is always a yet. And finally, I want you to know that God has the final victory. He has done it. It is finished. Jesus started by saying, why have you forsaken me? And he ended up defeating death.